Since April 12th of 1990, I haven't found it necessary, nor wanted to take a drink of alcohol or mood-altering substance, and that's been the best thing absolutely that's ever happened to me. And it's uh, it's really, really good to be here, and uh, it's really an honor to be part of this. Uh, I need to tell you, it's a uh, real special conference. You know, the speakers we've had so far and uh, that we're going to have uh, just are people that I've looked up to ever since I've been sober, you know. And uh, I uh, I was doing a little math here. I'm definitely the baby of this group uh, in sobriety up here with my mid, a little old 20 years. And, uh, you know, I remember one time a couple years ago I was out in Clancy's territory out at the uh, Southern Cal Convention. And they have an old-timers meeting, just like you're going to have this afternoon. And, but I want to tell you, when they have an old-timers meeting, they have an old-timers meeting. Because you realize that's where everybody goes to die when they get sober, right? <laughs> but anyway, we're in this old-timers meeting, and I happen to be the Saturday night speaker at this thing. And, but I'm, I got, unfortunately, with this group of old guys, and they all started sharing their sobriety dates. You know, and guys said, well, I got 47 years. Other guys said, I got 43 years. Guys said, I got 37 years. And one guy said, hey, aren't you the Saturday night speaker? And he said, yeah, how many years you guys? I said, hey, guys, we all got one day at a time, right? You know? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, I really mean that. I, it's been special uh, listening to the people that are so far down the road. And uh, what you realize or I realize is that the uh, it just gets richer and richer, you know, as, as you go on uh, in this journey. And I really appreciate that, you know, and. As I listened to the history, they were talking about the history last night. I really happen to believe that uh, that someday, you know, people will look back on Alcoholics Anonymous as one of the greatest love stories, you know, one of the greatest love stories that God's ever created. You know, and I'm just so blessed uh, and lucky to be a part of that. You know, I, I love Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I am from Louisville, Kentucky. My home group's the Lampton Street Group. Uh, I want to give a shout-out to all the AAs here from Louisville. I know there's a bunch of them. Yeah. i got to give a shout-out to my big book group that's here. i got some real needy guys in that group. And they, when I'm going to talk, they always say, mention my name on the tape. Please mention my name on the tape. So, guys, I'm just going to mention your name generically. My big book group is back in the back there. So, I got it. You know, I love Alcoholics Anonymous because, you know, it, it's made my world so big. And when I showed up here on April 12, 1990, my world was very, very small. You know, in fact, I'm an Irish Catholic from Kentucky, okay? When I was about 10 or 12 years old, my dad said to me one time, he said, Tim, so I have three ten- things you need to know about living in the world, boy. And here they are. Football, you pull for Notre Dame. Basketball, you pull for Kentucky. And you vote the straight Democratic ticket. That's it, kid. Now get out there and live. And you know what? That's not a very big world. But by the time I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, April 12th of 1990, it had really gotten smaller than that, you know, because if you weren't me, then I didn't want you in my life, and you certainly didn't want me in your life. And I say that today because here I am, you know, in front of a bunch of people. I've been to all parts of the country as a direct result of Alcoholics Anonymous, and a guy like me, it just wasn't going to happen, you understand. I love the diversity in Alcoholics Anonymous. I told you my home group is the Lampton Street Group. Uh, It's in the inner city in downtown Louisville. It's down in the hood. I mean, it's in the hood. And I've been sober ever since I got sober. It's been my home group. And I'll tell you this story because I think this is so much what AA is all about. You know, as a direct result of being down in the inner city, probably about 70% of the guys I sponsor are African-American men or black men. You know, and I don't think a lot about it. It's just where I hang out, right? 
Well, a couple of years ago, down my way, down that way, they changed this one-way street from a one-way street to a two-way street. And I'm going up this street this one day, and keep in mind now, it's only about three blocks from my home group. And I'm going up to get on the expressway, and pow, I got hit in the rear end. And I get out, and the man that hit me was an elderly black man and his, and his wife. And we're standing there in the middle of the street, right, waiting for the cops to come, as you do. And keep in mind, I'm only about three blocks from my home group. About that time, here comes two guys down the side of the street, both black. They run over to me. They go, hey, Tim, you all right, man? You okay? I said, yeah, guys, I'm all right. Go ahead. About that time, here come two guys down the other side of the street, both black men. They run over to me. They said, Tim, are you hurt? Can we do anything for you? I said, fine, fine, guys. About that time, car came off the expressway. Had five guys in there, all black men. They stopped the car and said, Tim, are you hurt? Can we take you to the hospital? I said, guys, go ahead. I'm all right. You know, I didn't think anything about it. I turned around. That old black man was standing there. He went, who are you anyway? (laughs) Now, what can I tell that guy, right? I'm just a drunk. There's no way I can tell him what's going on there. You know, I'll tell you another I was a couple years sober. My sponsor, Don M., sent me down to Cherokee, North Carolina, to speak, uh, to give my talk at an Indian, uh, Cherokee Indian Reservation. And I'm kind of new into this whole deal and kind of nervous about it to start off with. And I get down to this place, and I'm the only non-Native American speaker, right? And I do not look like an Indian. You know, and I'm all nervous, and I get up there, and just like Clancy sitting here, right here, the chief was sitting there with his arms folded, and the shaman guy was there, and all the Indians were right here, and I got so nervous, the next thing I heard myself saying was, hey guys, you know what, when I was a kid, I used to watch those cowboys and Indians movies, I pulled for the Indians, I swear I did. The chief started laughing, and I felt a little bit better. And after my talk, he came up to me and said, You know what, boy, we were kind of worried about you. But when you told that lie up there, we knew you were in the right place. <laughs> oh, you know, and I love AA. You know, somebody was talking about it last night. You know, there's no place like it in the world where you can come in here and have the entertainment value and, and have the love uh, that we have in Alcoholics Anonymous. The other thing I want to share, I know there's some new people in here. There was a bunch of them in here last night. What I need to share with you, when I was brand new and I showed up and I sit in the chairs where you're sitting and I listen to the speaker, what I have to tell you I did is I listened to what the speaker did that I didn't do. Man, I was all about that. I'd come to the meeting. I'd listen to the speaker. I'd think I did that. I did that. Uh Uh-uh. Did not do that, man. Came back the next night. I'd go, did it, I did it, I did it, didn't do it. Because, you know, the didn'ts were big for me. Because if I thought I get enough didn'ts, I am out of here, you know. I was about six weeks into this. I'm at a meeting. I'm listening to this lady, of all things, is speaking. And I'm identifying. Everything this lady says, I'm thinking, I did that, I did that, I did that. Oh, my God, I did that, too. But right at the end of her talk, she said she used to carry a half pint in her bra. I said, I did not do that. (laughs) And I told some old guy about that after the meeting, and he said to me, Tim, sounds like you're getting a little desperate there to me, buddy. See, because I showed up looking for the dirty old men in a raincoat. Somebody was talking about that this morning, and there were no dirty old men in raincoats. In fact, it was just like today. You know, people dress nice, nice looks on their face, you know, having a good time. And what I'm saying is I couldn't tell you were an alcoholic by looking at you. And then I started listening to your stories. 
and your stories were all over the place, all kind of different stories, right? But here's what happened to me, and I need to mention this because this has never changed. You know, I, I really do believe in the purity of the identification in Alcoholics Anonymous. I think we all have a responsibility to make sure when we share that we identify in a way that an alcoholic can understand that. Because what happened to me as I listened to your stories, no matter what your stories were, I heard you talking about three things. You were talking about being restless, irritable, and discontent. You were talking about being apart from, not a part of. And you were talking about progressive patterns of dishonesty in your life. And I'm sitting there going, oh, no. Because if that is what Alcoholics Anonymous is all about, I am screwed. Because those three things have been part of my life from the get-go. Those three things I have wrestled with for 20 years right in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, restless, irritable, discontent. What is it? Don't know. Just got it. I've always had it. You know, when I found alcohol when I was 13, took a drink and took it away, I never forgot that, and I chased that for about 27 years. Apart from, not a part of. You know, that's huge with me. There's still a part of me, 20 years sober, that always wants to separate from the pack, right? There's a part of me that shows up to any conference, as long as I've been doing this, before the weekend's over, it'll go, you don't belong here. You know, they'll know you're different. You know, if, I, if I'm in California, they'll know I'm from Kentucky. You know, there's that, that part of me that always wants to separate from the pack. You know, let me share this with you because I still identify with this to this day. I have eight grandkids, and I love to watch old movies with them. And one of my favorite movies is E.T., The Extraterrestrial. Remember that movie back in the 80s? And the reason I remember it, when it first came out, I was out rip-roaring drunk one night with a lady that I think I was engaged to, you know, one of those deals. But anyway, I'm watching the movie, and there's a part in the movie where E.T., the Martian guy, he gets all green and gray and crinkly. You know, he's drying up. He's dying. He's absolutely dying. But then all of a sudden, he looks up in the sky, and he goes, Home, home, E.T., home. Man, tears just started coming down my face. And this girl I was said, what is wrong with you? I said, I know just how I feel. <laughs> and you know what? Here's the thing. I could tell that same story in church. Nobody gets it. You tell that in AA? Oh, yeah, man. We know. We know. We've been trying to get home our whole life. You know, and I need to understand that because, see, what I didn't understand when I got here is I have a spiritual malady. I got a hole somewhere down there that's been there for a long time. You know, and stopping drinking was going to be the first part of getting better, but it was not going to be the only part. The last thing you all were talking about was progressive patterns of dishonesty in your life. And I'm thinking, oh, man, that's a problem for me because I was a guy who lied when the truth was good enough. Let's say that again. I lied when the truth was good enough. I can remember as a little kid, if I scored 24 points in the game, came home, how many points you scored, Tim? 30, you know? <laughs> Got to be on the test, what'd you get, Tim? B plus. You know, and I can remember even as a little kid thinking, you know, Tim, what's that all about? Why isn't the truth good enough for you? You know, why do you add to it? You know, I, what I believe today, if you're set up to be an alcoholic of my variety, then you almost know intuitively that the truth cannot be good enough for you. Somehow you almost begin to live in a dishonest state. You know, I was, uh, Clancy will appreciate this, I was about uh, six months sober. I was back home with my family, finally. 
I'm sitting up with my 13-year-old daughter at the time. You know, she can't sleep because she's 13. I can't sleep because I'm three or six months over. Quarter to one in the morning, she says, hey, Dad, can I order a pizza? And I say, oh, honey, don't do that. Your mother will go nuts. She said, oh, come on, let me. I said, all right, go ahead. <laughs> so she orders the pizza at 1.15 in the morning. Doorbell rings. It's a pizza man. Of course, my wife comes flying out of the kitchen, starts yelling at my daughter, saying, what are you doing getting a pizza at 1.15 in the morning? My daughter said, well, Dad said I could. My wife said, you say she could? I said, no. <laughs> My daughter said, Dad, you are lying. I said, I know it. I do it all the time. <laughs> and let me tell you why I say all that to say this. Restless, irritable discontent, apart from, not a part of, and progressive patterns of dishonesty in my life. See, what I didn't know when I showed up, which I know today, is what I just described was the spiritual malady called alcoholism. Restless, irritable, and discontent. And the good news is you guys were going to give me a package of recovery, of a fellowship, and of the steps to deal with the whole deal. Restless, irritable, and discontent. You said, Tim, we're going to hook you up with this God of your own understanding. So that when that moment comes at 3 o'clock in the morning, you've got some place to go to. Apart from, not a part of, we'll give you the great fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And all you got to do is show up, you know, day after day, drag your old butt in here. And progressive patterns of dishonesty in your life, Tim, if you'll do these steps, and you'll do these steps over and over and practice them in your life, you'll learn what your truth is. You'll be able to accept your truth. And you'll be able to understand finally, Tim, that the truth is good enough. And if you can do that, you have a chance to stay sober. And you have a chance to have a wonderful life. You know, and I say that so much because, you know, I do that right up front because you've heard it all weekend. You know, I knew alcohol was a problem for me. It had always been a problem for me. What I didn't understand was that what my real problem was is when I didn't have it. Because when I didn't have it, you know, I, I could not live successfully, you know, in the skin that I had, you know, for about 14 months. And I'll talk about this in a little bit. When I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I did the same thing. Told you I came from an Irish Catholic family. It wasn't if you were going to drink, it was when and how good you were going to do it, you know. Uh, interestingly enough, I was the first alcoholic in my, my uh, family. Uh, I heard a guy, I don't know who it was, uh, classify his family one time this way. It was exactly the way my family was. There were two types of people in my family. We had nervous people and we had characters, you know. No alcoholics, keep in mind. We had a lot of nervous people and a lot of characters. <laughs> You know, my dad used to tell his story. He said, you know, you remember when Uncle Pat got all drunk up at night and Uncle Uncle Mike was sneaking in the window and Uncle Pat woke up and he shot him, you know? <laughs> and everybody would laugh and have another drink. <laughs> and my dad would say, boy, Uncle Mike, he was a character. And I'd be thinking, Dad, he was a killer. What are you talking about? <laughs> and, you know, that's what I'm telling you. The, the truth was on both sides of my family, people were dying of the disease of alcoholism for a long time, you know, but I also grew up in an environment nobody wanted to call it what it was, and then they and they really didn't for a long, long time. And turned out I was the first one to get sober in my family, and thank God not the last one. What I'll share with you from this point forward is that, you know, from 17 years old on, alcohol would start to take from me everything that it would ever mean anything to me. 
You know, one of the gifts and skills that I had as a teenager, and this was the only one, and if in the state of Kentucky, if you can shoot a basketball through a hoop, that's a good deal, right? That's a big deal here. And I was an all-state basketball player in Louisville. My name was in the paper a lot. My picture was in the paper a lot. And the only reason I mention that is that was my whole self-esteem. Because other than that, I was a six-foot-four, goofy, pimply, afraid-of-girls type of guy, man, and alcohol was perfect for a guy like me. But as a direct result of my basketball, I was able to get a, a scholarship to a Division I college, St. Louis University in St. Louis, which is great for a young Catholic kid. And, and that was a huge deal in my family because I was the first one to go to college, much less have a scholarship. And what I want to share with you is that from 18 years old, I left Louisville in 1966 in all my glory. And four years later, I was going to come home in a whole different state of mind and condition as a direct result of what I know today is a disease called alcoholism. See, because I got up there my first year, you know, and in those days you couldn't play as a freshman. But I showed up to the first game of my sophomore year so drunk that the other players had to hide me on the end of the bench so they wouldn't throw me out of school. So this is like going down to watch UC play Louisville, and on the end of the bench, one of the kids is just bombed. And here's what I want to share with you. I look back on that one day when I got into Alcoholics Anonymous, did a little inventory, and there were two things that went on that day that were going to continue to plague me for a long, long time. The first one was all about this thing I know now called a physical allergy. Because what happened was I was walking down the street, two guys said, hey, you want to get a drink? I said, well, yeah. I always said, yeah. And my mind always said, hey, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a couple beers. You can come home, get a nap, get up, get a shower, go to the game, and be a hero. That's what my mind always said. And I don't know anything about a physical allergy or mental obsession. The other part of that equation that happened that day was my feelings had gotten hurt the day before. You know, the coach told us who was going to be the starters, who were going to be the substitutes. And when my feelings got hurt, you know, and I, and I say this today because I had no idea that I had a thing called a disorder of the ego that's talked about in our book. And the way I like to frame it up in my life, the way it's always appeared in my life, is that sooner or later, no matter what, whether I'm on your team, whether I'm working for you, I'm in a relationship with you, sooner or later, I start to notice that I'm not getting the respect that a man of my stature should be getting. You know, it's awful. It plagues me even in Alcoholics Anonymous sometimes. I start noticing that I'm not getting respect a guy 20 years sober should be getting. You know the good deal about AA? Nobody gives a damn, you know. <laughs> and that was really good for me because when I showed up, you guys said, hey, if you want what we have, then come on in, Tim. But if you need to drag your old ego in here, that's probably not going to work in Alcoholics Anonymous. But I say that because that was a part of that equation that day, and that was going to be a part of my deal for a long, long time. And, and uh, I came to realize as I got reading the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that uh, we do have a disease that absolutely centers right in that ego of mine that's it's out of whack. So I start there, and you pretty much can guess that the basketball came to a pretty quick end. Because what had happened to me at 18 years old was I had alcohol had moved to the top spot. I was listening to Sandy talk last night, and what he said, once he got a hold of alcohol, it really didn't matter anymore. You know, and that's kind of the way it was with me. I, I lost the basketball, which was the most important thing in my life, but it really didn't seem to matter. I had found something that was magic. I had found something, and it enabled me to live daily more comfortably, and I was all about that. I stuck around that college 
for the next three and a half years. Uh, you know, my nickname at that college was the Vagabond. <laughs> There's a great name you know, for an 18, 19 year old kid. But I had that name because that's the way I lived. You know, I didn't have a home. And every day, you know, I drank and I ended up where I ended up. You know, and what happened to me at that point in time, uh, alcohol started to dictate on a daily basis what I did, who I did it with, and especially where I ended up on any given day, you know. I um, hung around there for three and a half years. And unfortunately, in college, my idea was kind of keep the party going. But they were going to make me graduate. I had enough credits to graduate. My grades were awful. And this is in 1970. Okay, let me take some of you back there. Some of you can get there easy. 1970, for guys my age, uh, there was a thing called the Vietnam War. Nobody was really too interested in getting over there in 1970. It wasn't going too well. They also had a thing called the draft lottery, and my lottery number was six. <laughs> so I'm going, right? And I was real conscious of that, and I'm leading my daily drinking life, but I'm thinking, Tim, you better come up with a, a plan for your life, buddy, or you're going to be over there shooting them up pretty quick. You know, and as crazy as this may sound to you, I want you to hang with me here, and some of you are going to be right with me. And I thought, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to come up with a plan for my life. Because there was only two ways you could get deferred from the draft. At that time, you could get married. I thought, man, that's awful drastic. <laughs> or you could go to, go to grad school. And I said, that's it. In fact, here's the plan. I'm going to take the test to get into law school. I'm going to pass that test. I'm going to go to law school. I'm going to graduate from law school. I'll eventually run for Congress and then someday president of the United States. I thought, hell, if you're going to have a plan, have a plan. And if you're like me, it's easy for me to go from street drunk to president of the United States. I mean, I could just do that, right? It's just the way I think. I went and took the test, and as you're probably going to guess, I got an awful score on the uh, law test, and the law school turned me down. Now, as meager as it may sound to you guys, you know, uh, now, you know, as I saw it, my life was on the line, because I knew it was Vietnam or Vietnam or Vietnam. And I remember sitting one day, Tim, why don't you come up with a new plan? And what came in my mind, Tim, why don't you stop drinking, man? Why don't you stop drinking, study for that test, and take it again, because you got the brains to get into that school, and you know you do. And what I want to share with you, for the, I've been a daily drinker at that point for the last four years. At that point, I stopped drinking. I got a guy who was real smart to tutor me. And for the next four to five weeks, I studied my rear end off for that law test. You know, and it was awful, man. I had to get over the shakes. You know, people were out partying, having a good time, and I'm stuck in here studying for this stupid test, but my life was on the line. Five weeks, the best effort that God gave me. It came down to the day before the test. I made a slight change to my plan. The new plan was, all right, I'm ready. I'm going to go out and have a couple beers so I can relax. Come back, get up, get a good night's sleep, take that test, pass that test, get into law school, Congress, President of the United States. <laughs> Same plan. I didn't get back to that campus to the following Tuesday. Found out later on I rode around St. Louis on a city bus about a day and a half of what I know today is called a blackout. You know, I remember when I was leaving to get those two beers, a bunch of guys tried to stop me, and they said, Tim, man, don't do it. You're going to ruin everything. You have worked your tail off. I said, guys, do I look stupid? You know, I will get this. I will be back in this dorm by 10 o'clock. You know, and everything in me believed that. But keep in mind, I don't know anything about physical allergy or mental obsession. And I certainly didn't know anything about phenomenon or craving. 
God was starting to mess with me a little bit about that time. What did happen was about 3 o'clock that morning, I knew I wasn't going to take the test, obviously. I was real drunk. I went back to the dormitory, found a real smart guy, paid him 20 bucks to go take the test for me. You know, and I'm not very proud of that. You know, I'm really not. But uh, And I forgot all about it. And I went out and got drunk for another three days. And But about three weeks later, we got the results of the test that the guy took in my name. The damn guy gets the highest score in the history of the law school. (laughs) It was not funny then, I'm going to tell you that. And I remember opening this score, you know, I'm going, you idiot. Look what you've done to me now. All right. I mean, I don't know the numbers. I think 800 was perfect. You know, he got a 799. I got the 300 on the one I took. So I got two, two scores in my name, 400 points apart. You know, and I did what you have to do, right? I called the dean. I thought I better get to them before they get to me. And I called the dean of the law school. And I'll never forget this because now I'm 23. And I make this appointment. I walk in and the man's standing there. And he never says a word the whole time I'm there. But I did what you have to do. I started to lie, right? I said, well, dean, you're probably wondering about the difference in those two scores. And he just looked at me and I knew that he knew I was lying. I'd been there before too, but I just did it. I said, look, Dean, at the last minute I decided I didn't want to be a lawyer. I let somebody take the test. How did he do? As if I didn't know, right? And what I wanted to share with you, and I don't know why I even remember this, but I do. 23 years old, as I turned to leave that office that day, what went through my head was, Tim, you know what happened, man. It's the booze. The booze took the basketball. The booze took your opportunity to go to law school because you got the ability and you know it. It's the alcohol, Tim. You know, I had a brief moment. At 23 years old, standing in that office where I knew the truth. But it did not last very long. You know, I walked out of that office. There were two guys that I knew. They said, hey, you want to get a drink? I said, yeah. That was 1970. It was going to be 20 years before I showed up into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know. And what I want to share with you, you know, that was four years from when I showed up there in all my glory, Mr. Allstate. Four years later, I went back to Louisville and I living a complete lie in my life. Because when I went back, I had to tell everybody I decided I didn't want to be a lawyer. The only person who knew the truth about that law school thing until I got to AA was my mom, right? Thank God for moms, huh? And mom kept the secret. The problem was Tim had the secret, too. And I'm now 23 years old, and I'm going to try to be a husband. I'm going to try to be a father. I'm going to try to go do life. And what I wanted to share with you is what I've come to realize that my alcoholism, and I think all of our alcoholism, takes a lot of material things from us, right? It takes cars, it takes houses, it takes relationships. What I'm really starting to understand now, what it really took for me very quickly, were those things that I would have told you I didn't ever want to give up. It took my integrity. It took my dignity. It took my sense of self-worth. Now, I didn't know that then, I'll tell you that for sure, but as I look back, I come back and I'm 23 years old and it's all gone. And I'm going to try to build a basis as an adult now, morally stripped. You know, and I only say this because I think I've really learned more and more as we stick around and I listen to people like we listened to this weekend, what this disease truly is all about. You know, and I came home and it turned out I took the draft physical and I flunked the draft physical on a congenital birth defect. I thought, damn, that could have saved me a lot of trouble, you know. (laughs) And I came home and I got into teaching and coaching because that's the only thing I was qualified to do. The first job I had, they made me the dean of an all-boys Catholic high school in Louisville. 
Okay, so they just put a drunk in charge of discipline <laughs> in their school. And uh, I did the job to the best of my ability. I'm going to tell you a quick story, and in in, in because it, it's my favorite of that whole period of my life. I'm the dean. I'm in charge of discipline, so you had to check into me in the morning. I had a lot of rough mornings, and this one particular morning, this is back in the 70s now, when all the kids are out in the parking lot hitting a few doobies, you know, to get ready for class, and I'm sitting in there, big old tomato head, man. I'm just trying to get through the first couple hours, you know. Boy, just I'm just hurting bad. I look up. Here's this kid standing over me. He had that long hair we had back in the 70s. You know, he had that army jacket on. You could smell that reefer, man. It was everywhere. And he was just kind of floating over top of my desk like this. And all of a sudden, he looked down. Hey, Mr. Island, you're looking bad, dude. <laughs> Oh, man. I think I said something like, hey, by God, I'm in charge here, and don't you forget that, you know. <laughs> the reason I like to tell you that story about that kid that day, listen to this. Last summer, that kid celebrated 27 years in Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> How about that? He lives down in Destin, Florida. He's a multimillionaire, and uh, he's doing a great job. You know, I went down there a couple of years ago to a conference, and he met me, and he, he got me, called me coach. He said, Coach, come here. He said, Look, I ain't ever told my kids now how it was. He said, I make you a deal. You don't say anything about me, I won't say anything about you. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, one of my great joys in Alcoholics Anonymous and uh, coming back is that over the last five to ten years especially, God's given me the opportunity to work with a lot of those same boys, I call them boys, that I tried to teach and coach in the 70s. And you know what happened? They showed up in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I got to sponsor them. Uh, there's a couple of them here today. Three or four, I guess six years ago now, we had three brothers that all came in AA at the same time, 90 days apart. I taught and coached every one of those kids and helped them come into Alcoholics Anonymous. And the reason I say that is, you know, God has given me so many ways to make up and to redo all those things that I fell so short of in my alcoholism. You know, and I'm so grateful for that. You know, let me tell you about one of those kids, though, real quickly. Sometimes I go this way and sometimes I don't, but I feel compelled to do it today. Uh, I was about seven years sober. One of those kids named Chris came into came into Alcoholics Anonymous. He was the very first one. And not only do I know this kid from teaching him, coaching him, I know him since he was a little kid. Because his family lived two streets from mine. They had seven kids like we had, but he was ten years younger than me. He came into AA. We did the deal for about two years, and it was great, man. We went to meetings. We did our steps. And then all of a sudden, Chris stopped calling me. All of a sudden, Chris stopped coming to meetings. All of a sudden, I don't know where he went. And once in a while, he'd call my office, and I'd say, man, what's going on? He said, oh, Tim, you know what? Uh, I'm not doing AA anymore. Uh, hey, what I am doing, Tim, is I'm doing the Big Brothers program. And, Tim, it's really good. I mean, I help these little kids in the ghetto. Tim, it's really, it's kind of like AA, you know? And I said to him what was said to me. I said, Chris, I don't know about big brothers. Here's what I've been told by the people ahead of me, that I'm a drunk, and I need to be around other drunks like myself. Man, I'd really like to see you come back into the program. And what happened to him, he couldn't do that. And what happened to him is what happens to all of us, right, sooner or later. His life took a turn that he didn't expect. And what happened to Chris, what he'd, he'd had a baby girl by a lady, and that lady didn't want that baby for the first year of its life. And Chris raised this little girl all by himself. But the second year of the kid's life, the mother came back 
and very viciously through the court system took that baby away from him and wouldn't let him see that baby. And what happened to Chris is what our book talks about. He went into this obsession of mind. He went into this loop thinking, this deep hole, and he was never going to see that baby again. And he kept calling me, and I kept saying, Chris, we need to get back into AA. But uh, that year, it was about two days before St. Patrick's Day, I remember that. And he called me one night and said, Tim, I can't handle this anymore. And I said, well, Chris, let's get together in the morning. Let's do the third step on our knees and turn this over to God. And what I want to share with you, that never happened. Because later that night, I got a call from my other guy I sponsored and knew. And he said, Tim, I'm at Chris's house and he's dead. Now, I went over that night and what I saw was this good-looking six-foot-two blind kid that I'd known since he was a baby. And he was sitting in a lawn chair in the backyard of his house. And under that lawn chair was an empty quart of Jack Daniels. And in his lap was the hose that had come out of the exhaust. And here's what I wanted to share with you. Because Chris never got to share his story, but I will share it for you. Because I stood there and I looked at that kid. And what went through my mind was this. You know what? You can make me the head of the Boy Scouts of America. You can make me the deacon of 50 churches. You can make me the head of the Mother Teresa fan club. You know, you can do any of all the good stuff that the world offers. If I forget first and foremost what I am and where I belong, you can forget about the rest. You know, I need to understand that because the one thing that you all told me is that, Tim, you can have it all. You can participate in this world as long as you understand that your sobriety and Alcoholics Anonymous comes first. And, you know, I knew that kid's family so well, and his mother said to me, Timmy, she said, I don't understand. I said, what don't you understand? She said, I don't understand how a life problem becomes that tough that you pick up a quart of alcohol and you take your own life. You know what? I looked at the poor lady and she did not understand. But by God, I understood. I understood because I had been to that point in the road and you had promised me I can be to that point in the road again. And you see, that's why I stay in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, Chris never got to live his story, but his story, as seven years of my sobriety, brought me even tighter into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, also when I got back uh, from the teaching and coaching, I got married to my high school sweetheart. If we had a couple hours, we could do a workshop on this part of my story. We got married in 1970. We had dated off and on in high school, but we got married in 1970. We got divorced for the first time in 1983. We got remarried again in 1985. We got divorced again in 1990. We got uh, remarried in 1990. We got divorced again in 1994. (laughs) Now, see, that's really not a bad reaction. You tell people in your office that, they go, what? You share that in A, everybody goes, oh, hell, sounds normal to us, you know. And you know, what is that all about? If you listen to Chuck today, what that's all about is the disease of alcoholism. I love him. I hate him. I hate him. I love him. He's good. He's bad. He's bad. He's good. You do the dance. And if you don't know, there's a thing called alcoholism in the middle of any relationship. You know, it's pretty much an impossible deal. And and looking back, what you had there were two decent people trying to deal with something they had no idea what they were dealing with. You know, I also had three beautiful children in that marriage, however. And if you're a father, how about having your oldest son born on Christmas morning? It's 1971. That was my gift from God, you know. Nine o'clock Christmas morning, I was supposed to be in the delivery room for this great gift. And I missed the gift, as I was to miss many gifts. 
because the best I could do that Christmas morning, I was in the hospital, but I was in the men's room with my head in the toilet bowl, spitting up whiskey. And all I could think about is i got to get out of here and i got to get something because my head's coming apart. I missed the gift, boy. I missed that gift that morning. And you know what? I really missed that kid growing up, to be honest with you, because the time I got sober, he was 17. And uh, I realized I hadn't been a participant at all, hardly in his life. Maybe physically sometimes, but very rarely, mentally or spiritually, was I part of that kid's life. And I was about six months sober, and I learned a vital lesson. I was six months sober, and this Christmas baby of mine, he's getting ready to go off to college, and he says to me one day, Hey, Dad, I'd like to talk to you before I can leave. And I'm six months sober, and I immediately think, "Uh Uh-huh, he probably wants to tell me how proud he is of me that I'm six months sober. (laughs) I'm sure that's it, and we have our little meeting. I said, Son, what is it you'd like to say? He said, Dad, I only have one thing to say to you. I said, What's that? He said, I hate you, Dad. He said, I hate you, Dad, and let me tell you why. I hate you because all you think about is you. He said, even since you stopped drinking, all you think about is you, bye. And he was out of there, man. And I'm like, I can't believe this just happened. (laughs) I made a bad mistake. I took this story out to a bunch of old-timers in AA. (laughs) They were not kind. (laughs) They were not kind. And one of the old fellas, uh, many of you knew him, I don't know Clancy did, Jack Sullivan. And Jack said to me, Tim, you drank for 27 years, and you think you're getting credibility back in your life in six months? Ain't going to happen. But, Tim, here's what will happen. You will get credibility back in your life one day at a time by not drinking and doing the next right thing. You'll get it back one day at a time by not drinking and doing the next right thing. You know what? That doesn't even sound too good to me now. But he was absolutely right. He was absolutely right. Eight years into my sobriety, you know, that Christmas baby called me from Seattle, Washington. His butt was on fire. But he knew his daddy was different, right? He knew his old man listened to him when he talked to him. He knew I was helping people in Alcoholics Anonymous. And he said, Dad, can I come home and can I stay with you? And he did. And he came home. He stayed with me for about a year. And that gentle healing that we're promised in Alcoholics Anonymous started to happen, you know. And today, 12 years later, his mom and I, about five, six years ago, helped him start his own uh, business in Louisville. He's a glass artist, and he's doing really, really well. He has three beautiful little girls, two of which are twins. And I will promise you, he loves every minute, every second, that those little girls get to be with their papas. You see, because 20 years of one day at a time of not drinking, slowly that credibility has come back. You know, And I say that because if you're new, you know, I know where you're at because you're where I'm at. When I showed up, my idea was, hey, everybody, let's call this even. <laughs> what do you say? <laughs> and nobody was interested in even. And you know why? It wasn't even. You know, but I know where you're at. But I do promise you, the credibility that co- does come back is like nothing I would ever ask for with my kids and with my grandkids, you know. So stick in there. You know, I did the teaching and coaching thing to the best of my ability for uh, those uh, years, and there's lots of other stories that went with that. But, you know, I came to a point in 1980, started to notice I wasn't getting the type of respect a guy of my stature should be getting, so I left, left teaching and coaching. I did what every drunk does sooner or later. I started my own business, right? Started my own business. Let me tell you about the 1980s. It didn't go well for me. It was not a good decade. 
already told you, got divorced for the first time in 83, got remarried in 1985, got uh, divorced again in 1987, remarried in 1990. I was engaged to two other women in between time. (laughs) I was in a nut house twice. I uh, lived 14 different places, had five different business partners, was in five major car accidents. I lost a quarter of a million dollars, and I thought, this is going okay. (laughs) We're always kind of like the last to know, right? 1983, I guess I got thrown out for the first time and uh, ended up uh, having to go live with mom and dad. I don't know if anybody in there had to do that. I know you have. Uh, I used to run guys I went to high school with it, and they say, hey, Tim, man, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm president of my own company. They said, no kidding, where are you living? I said, well, mom and dad, you know. <laughs> From 1982 to 1985, I went through five psychiatrists, and that was a real simple program. I kept them. <laughs> I kept them until they talk, started talking about alcohol. They started talking about alcohol. I fired them, got me a new guy. I was taking antidepressants of any and every kind, drinking whiskey and beer on a daily basis. If you're using that recipe, it did not work very well for me. 1985, New Year's Eve, couldn't live drunk, couldn't live sober. Living at mom and dad's, and I knew the truth, and the truth was the thrill was gone, man. The thrill was gone. And our book promises that there will come a time where, you know, it's gone. In other words, you can't live drunk, you can't live sober. No matter how much I drank that day, I I couldn't get to where I needed to get. And that was my first visit to the asylum, and my brother Tommy drug me over to Our Lady of Peace, which is our asylum nut house down on the hill down in Louisville. I want to tell you this story, and someday I want to find this nurse and get her side of it, but here's how I remember it. <laughs> they checked me into this place, and they put me back in a little detox room, and this nurse came back, sitting next to me, and she said, well, honey, tell me about it. I said, all right, I'll tell you about it. My first wife, a couple years ago, threw me out for no reason that I can think of, and then uh, I got engaged with this other girl, and she took off with a ring, and I haven't even paid for it. And, oh, yeah, did I tell you, my daddy went to prison when I was 12, and, man, I was off and running. And I got feeling better and better the more I talked, you know. Looked at the nurse after a while. She didn't look so good. But I don't know. Maybe I'm there an hour, hour and a half, two hours. But I do remember this specifically. She looked me in the eye, and she said, well, honey, you certainly have a right to feel the way you do. And I thought, God, lady, you are so right. What was I thinking? If you'd have messed over, if you'd got messed over like I got messed over, by God, you'd drink and be depressed too. I hadn't been there two hours and I was cured, you know. <laughs> Honestly, I spent the next 16 days that time just in there trying to help everybody else. <laughs> I thought God sent me on a mission, you know. They made me head of the stress class. I got a blue ribbon for the best ceramic in the shop, you know. Still, <laughs> still got it. You want to hear insanity? About halfway through that stay, I'm walking down the hospital corridor one day, and the nurse says, would you like a pass out tonight? And I must have thought she said, you want to pass out tonight? (laughs) I said, please. She said, yeah, if you want to go out for a couple hours, as long as you're back by curfew. I said, hey, thanks. That's really nice. Called my best buddy. He picks me up. Man, we go right to the watering hole. Slam down six, eight beers. You know, get a couple shots of whiskey. Got a big old bottle of wine up on the table. I'm telling about all the people I'm helping back to the hospital. <laughs> Quarter to 11, you know. I said, hey, I got curfew. We got to be back. So both of us pile back in the car, just drunker than drunk, and go back to the nut house. I'm getting out the passenger side to go back in the door, and I look back. He's got tears coming down his face. I said, what is wrong with you? He said, Tim, you don't belong in there. I do. <laughs> <laughs> 
I think I said something like, you know what, I think you're right, and when I get out of here, I'll help you, you know. And I went back in there and I did what I always did, right? I came out, got me a new girlfriend, got me a new place to live, got me a new... I started over. I was always starting over, you know. And if you listen to our stories, we're the best starter-overs in the world. Can't finish much of anything, but we can flat start over. Ended up getting back with my most frequent wife, as I call her, back in the, when I came out of the hospital. And it just got worse, no matter what we did, you know. And it was pointed out to me when I got here, Tim, wherever you go, there you are. And the new house didn't make any difference, and the new car didn't make any difference. Uh, I was still there. And she threw me out, and that was late 1989, I guess it was. And I spent the last six months of my uh, drinking living in a guy's basement out in the south end of Louisville. I can't tell you anything miraculous happened there, except now it's president of my own company living in a guy's basement. You know, I thought that was a step up a little bit. But I want to tell you a special story that all of a sudden has evolved with this part of my story, because God is God has a way in Alcoholics Anonymous of doing little cute twists, I think, to keep our attention. Because when I went to live in this guy's basement, it was a friend of mine. I had to bump his nine-year-old son out of his bed because I, that's where I slept was in this nine-year-old kid's bed. And I guess the kid slept on the, uh, on the couch, right? And I never thought a lot about it. But anyway, this little kid's name was Nick. And uh, so I went on and, and uh, got sober. That was, as it turned out, was going to be the place where I took my last drink, was right there in little Nick's bedroom. Well, this past year, about a year ago, just about this time, about two days ago, I got a call from the local nut house. And they said, he got somebody here who wants to talk to you. He's in, uh, in treatment here, and uh, he says he knows you. And I got on the phone. He says, uh, Tim, this is Nick. He said, I'm in the treatment center, and I heard you're an Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, can you help me? I said, yes, sir, I can help you. And that was the same Nick, okay, whose bed I took over 20 years ago where I was going to take my last drink. And today, February the 18th, Nick, who happens to be sitting right here, is celebrating his one-year token birthday in Alcoholics Anonymous. Wow, huh? What a wonderful program we have. This stuff like that happens. And, uh, you know, it's been a great journey having Nick back in my life. And uh, God has a way sometimes of saying to you, hey, I told you if you'd stay on the firing line of life, Tim, that special things would happen, you know, and they certainly have. You know, I, uh, I share with you, I showed up at Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, I was living in that basement. I got up April 12, 1990, like I always did. No big deal. I drank about six beers the night before, so no, no big deal going on there. Uh, and I got up out of that basement, and I went into my office. And I'm in a business where it's real busy. The phone rings all day. There's people in and out of my office all day. April 12, 1990, I went in there to sit down about quarter to eight. I never moved a muscle till noon. The phone never rang one time. Nobody ever came in the office that morning for whatever reason. You know, and the book talks about our moment of clarity. And all I can tell you is the sense of me came over is that, Tim, it's over. It is over, and you know what the problem is. 
And I reached in my desk drawer and I found a meeting of the direct of Alcoholics Anonymous that a guy had given me two and a half years before. And it was right there at my right hand for two and a half years. And that's the day I went to my very first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And what I will share with you from that day until tonight or until this afternoon, over the last 20 plus years for me, as you've heard from some of the other speakers, you know, life has been in session, you know. Life has been in session. You know, my mom's died. My dad's died. I've had a guy, two guys I sponsored killed themselves. I've had a guy who I sponsored, black guy down in, uh, down in the hood, got gunned down about two years ago. You know, so life is happening. You know, what I didn't realize was I was kind of hoping when I showed up that sobriety was going to be about the absence of problems in my life. And you guys said, no, Tim, <laughs> that's not what it's about, buddy. Here's what it's about. You get to be part of life and everything that goes with it. And here's the hit, Tim. You get to be there in body and mind and spirit. And that really rang home to me because let me tell you, back in the day, my wife used to say to me this. She would say, Tim, you're not even here when you're here. I'd say, what do you mean? I am here. And you see, all of a sudden, if you read our book, it says we got a threefold disease, body, mind, and spirit. And the deal with me was sometimes I could bring my body, but I couldn't bring my mind, and I couldn't bring my soul. If you can only bring your body, you can't be a dad. If you can only bring your body, you can't be a husband. You can't be a grandpa. You can't be much of anything. And see, I say that because the greatest gift that you all have given me, and I would have never suspected that lots of times today, not every day, not every moment, but I can be there in body, mind, and spirit. I can be there. I have eight grandbabies. And I can sit on the floor for two and a half hours and play Monopoly with my three nine-year-old grandchildren. And you see, a guy like me couldn't do that. A guy like me couldn't give two and a half hours to anybody. You see, because it was all about me. My disease was this. I was either drinking, I was thinking about drinking, or I was thinking about me. And you know what? That doesn't leave much space for anybody, does it? So what a gift it is to know that the greatest thing you're going to give me was the gift of presence, the gift to be able to be there and sit in the treehouse with my grandkids for a couple hours. Thank you so much for that. I would have never, ever thunk it. I would have never even asked for that. But that's what happened. I ended up coming to that meeting. And to be honest with you, for the first 14 months, I hung around Alcoholics Anonymous, didn't have a home group, didn't have a sponsor. I was kind of auditing Alcoholics Anonymous, you know. <laughs> and I was getting crazy. I really was, you know, and uh, but I had to do it myself like everything else in my life. And I'm about 14 months along, and I, I'm really getting surly, really getting nuts. And I had met a little guy who became my first sponsor, and I couldn't sleep at night. And he'd always tell me, Tim, just say this as you go to sleep. God is love. God is love. God is love. You know, and that's how I went to sleep every night in early sobriety. Still do that sometimes. But at 14 months drier in a bone, God is love was not getting it done, damn it. You know, and I said, if I call that little sucker and he gives me that one. Pressed and I am so angry. He said, good, good, good. He said, Tim, listen to this. In Alcoholics Anonymous, God is love, but love is action. God is love, but love is action. Steps 1, 2, and 3, your powerlessness, his power. Steps 4 through 11, uh, 4 through 9 is to clean up your mess. 
Step 10 is a refresher course every day. Step 11 gets you hooked up with your God. And step 12 gets you hooked up with us. Tim, what do you say, buddy? I said, yes, sir, I am ready. Because I cannot live in my skin the way I feel any longer. And that was the day he sent me down to Lambton Baptist Church. And I became the coffee maker there on Wednesday mornings. There's some Lambton people here today. He put me in a big book study. And I did the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And had big book studies in my office as we speak every Wednesday night. And you know what happened to me? I found out the greatest secret in AA. The greatest secret. I found out where the fun is. The fun is in the middle. I'd have never thunk it. The fun is in people who put this conference on. The fun is in the people who get there early to put the coffee on. The fun is in the people who are engaged in the actions of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'd have never, ever figured it out. And I say that to you. So if you're here tonight or this afternoon and you're hanging out there on those edges, come on in, you know. Get into the middle of it. It's a blast in the middle. It is miserable on the edges. I've never known it to be any way else. You know, when I showed up here, I told you I owed a quarter million dollars to people who really wanted it back. (laughs) They did, and they bothered me about it a lot, and I thought that was very unfair. I was trying to get sober, and uh, they were awful about it. They They just harassed me. It was almost like stalking, as a matter of fact. And my first year of sobriety was miserable because, you know, I'd go to my office and I'm shoving papers from one side of the desk to the other side. Of course, I'm trying to think of one big deal to come up with a quarter of a million dollars, right? And I'd get so frustrated and that fear would just lock me down. And by noon, I'd be home, crawled up in a ball, you know, going to sleep every day, man, trying to fight that fear, fight that fear. And I'm in a meeting one night sitting next to this old guy. I'm whining about all this, and he says, what's your problem? And I tell him, my business is bankrupt, and I owe a quarter million dollars to people who are after me. And he says, sit down. He said, tell me about your business. I said, okay, I will. I said, well, we open at 8 o'clock. He said, good, Tim, be there at 8 o'clock. Not 8.05, not 8.10. Tim, you be there at 8 o'clock. What's next? I said, well, I'm supposed to make sales calls. He said, good, make your sales calls. What's next? I said, well, I'll go to lunch. He said, Tim, go to lunch. And Tim, come back from lunch. <laughs> I said, good point there. What's next? I said, well, I'm supposed to come back and do my paperwork. He said, good, come back and do your paperwork. What's next? I said, well, work's over at 445. He said, good, go home. Have dinner with your family. Go to your meeting. Come home. Say your prayers. And then he really hit me with it. He said, Tim, do the same thing the next day. I'm thinking, wow, like what a concept. (laughs) Like a guy does that like every day. You know what, and what, uh, what that old man told me, which my sponsor is now named and taught me, is that he was telling me to do the stitches and leave the patterns up to God. Tim, you just do the stitches and trust that God's pattern are going to be far greater than anything you would design anyway. And that sounds so neat, doesn't it? Except when I start stitching, I can't help it. I start thinking, oh man, what am I making? Is this a hat? Is it a shirt? Oh God, when's it going to be done? You know? said, no, no, no. You just stitch, my son, and we will promise you that the pattern God comes up with will be so much greater. Let me tell you a sequel to that old man's story. And I started doing that. I did my stitches. I got there at 8. I went on my sales calls. I went to lunch. I came back from lunch, and it was not working. You know, I counted up my money. I still owed $249,979, you know, after two months. But I'm doing it because that old man asked me to, and you know what? I had nothing else to do. 
Five years down the road, I come in from my home group one morning. There's seven phone messages. Six of them are AA guys. And the last one's from one of the local business reporters, newspapers. So I call this reporter, and she said, Mr. Highland, uh, your business has been referred to us as one of the most successful of its kind in the area. We'd like to do an article on your success. And I'm like, well, yeah, okay. That sounds good. That would be great. And here's what she says. She said, well, Mr. Highland, can you tell us what was it you did different that turned your business around? I tell you what, I got two things going on in my head. You know, I got this one side that's got this story about how I pulled myself up from my bootstraps. I came up with this incredible idea. But what I ended up saying to her, well, my office opens at 8 o'clock. I get there on time. I go to my sales meetings. I come back from my sales meetings. I go to lunch. I come back from lunch. I go right through it. At the end of my deal, there's like silence on the other end of the phone, you know. And she, she says something like, uh, well, thank you, sir. We'll see what we can do. <laughs> but you know what? I'd all, I also knew when I hung up the phone that I had told her the truth. Because all I had done was that an old man asked me to do the simple little stitches in life that I hadn't been doing. And you see, that's my guiding light today. The guys I sponsor get sick, sick of listening about the stitches. But in my personal life, in my business life, in my home life, all I have to ask God is, for that divine inspiration to know just what that next right stitch is. And you know what? It's always there. And it's always simple. It's always simple. You know, I uh, share with you that the uh, we talk about this whole thing with marriages and failed relationships and how funny it is in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'll tell you right off the bat, none of that that you heard was funny when it was going down. You know, and getting divorced and losing your uh, marriage in uh, when you're drunk is one thing. Losing it in sobriety is a whole different deal. And when I lost my marriage in 1994 again, uh, still confused about, you know, what my part of that was. Uh, it was very painful. But you guys said, stay on the firing line. I did that, and I stayed in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I pretty much led the celibate life there for a couple, three years. And, you know, we went about our business. And... Um, I, I concentrated on being a father, and uh, but you know I was getting a little edgy, getting a little restless. I thought it's time for me to move on, and I uh, thought God might want to find a, a companion for me, and, and He did. You know, it's amazing when you want God to find them; they they tend to show up, and and it happened. And I met a real great lady, a good lady in Alcoholics Anonymous, a great member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and uh, we started dating. I guess it was about 1997, 98. <clears throat> And, you know, we had like the mandatory, uh, AA mandatory three-month uh, dating, and then we got married, you know. <laughs> it was a little bit longer than that, but not too much longer. And, uh, you know, I need to say this to you. You know, I thought it was absolutely the best thing that, that it ever happened to me, and it was. It really was, I think, for both of us. And we did the best we could, but the thing lasted eight months. Eight months. And I'm going to tell you now, 1998, you know, and I'm now eight years sober and right in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous, and, and I'm asking God, what is wrong with me? What is so broken within me that makes it almost impossible for me to have a relationship with a person of the opposite sex? You know, I had no clue. But I also will tell you that it was a real defining moment for me because it drove me to a whole different level of surrender. And it forced me to take a look even deeper within myself at my own self-centeredness and what that was all about, you know. And I guess, unfortunately, that's the way it happens for all of us. 
it was painful, it was embarrassing, but, you know, I carried on as you taught me how to carry on. Went on about a year and a half, and interestingly enough, I uh, got a call one day from my most frequent wife, remember her? That would be the mother of my children. And I was living with my dad at the time, and uh, back with my dad, and uh, she said, what are you doing? I said, well, nothing, I'm living with dad. And she said, you want to go on a vacation with the kids? I'm going to take them down to South Carolina. I said, well, yeah, I got nothing else to do. So I went on this vacation. I met them down there. And, of course, they had their condo, and I got a place to stay. Now, here you go. Here's somebody that two people have known each other since they were 17 years old. You've heard the, heard the, uh, the path that it's followed, married and divorced, you know, three different times. Divorced this last time for, like, five years. But when we got down there in South Carolina, something different had happened. Something strange had taken place. We actually became friends for the very first time. We became parents and co-parents for the very first time. You know, we became grandparents, and we became people who became friends and partners. You know, and we, we started to build that relationship. And I don't know why we never could before. But anyway, we went on, we became friends. We actually did this. We started dating. We had never dated before in our whole existence since we'd known each other from 17 years old on. I eventually sold my place, moved into her place. I guess about 2002, which would have been about nine years ago, we were sitting there one day. I looked at her. She looked at me. I said, well, what do you think? In a little bit of ceremony where I had a guy in AA who was the justice of the peace and my grandkids were the flower girls, we got married again in 2002. So this past November the 28th, we celebrated our 40th gross wedding anniversary. I have no idea what the net is. I have no idea what the net is. But I can tell you this. We're having the best time. You know, we, we are buddies. We are friends. We are living every stitch of life today together. And, you know, I can't tell you how important that is. But I will tell you how important that is. Because, you know, Sandy last night was talking about sometimes life just jumps up and bats you upside the head. Two weeks ago, my wife... <clears throat> just totally unexpectedly was diagnosed with a form of cancer in her eye. Just totally unexpected. And uh, we don't know how serious it is, but, you know, anytime that word pops up, you know, you never really expect it. But, you know, here's the good deal. The good deal, and we both discussed this, is that, thank God, God has brought us to this point in our life where we are so together that whatever goes on with her cancer treatment, we are going to do it together. Next week, we're going to drive up to the University of Cincinnati Medical Center for her procedure. And I'm going to stay there, and we're going to do this together. You see, I say that word, guys, because I didn't know what together meant. I lived a lifetime as an alcoholic and a self-centered alcoholic. I couldn't do together. It's taken what it's taken for me to get to this point. I'm so gracious and so grateful to all of you for letting me be part of this and slowly let me continue to fall on my nose long enough to learn how to be a partner and learn how to be somebody who can be there for somebody else. So we ask you certainly to keep, you know, keep us in your prayers and keep her in your prayers. And you know, and you will, you know, Sandy said last night, and I think I did this right, when something happens like that, you pause and then you turn around and you ask God to come with you. 
And I did that, but what I didn't realize, not only was God coming with me, there was all, all these AA people were right behind God, you know. I spoke two weeks ago when this first happened down in, in Florida, and I mentioned this in my talk. I have had emails from Hawaii, from uh, all over the country. I told my wife, you're on more prayer lists than, uh, than you can imagine. And you see, because here's what I want to say to you if you're new. No matter what happens to you in your life, if you're in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous, you will never, ever, never do anything alone. And what a neat deal that is, because most of my life, you know, I did so many things alone. So we uh, we know you'll be there. We know that power of prayer is there. We know the power of Alcoholics Anonymous is there. You know, I, I'll share this with you, and, and uh, it has a little bit of an outline tint to it. You know, you realize, I, I take a look one time why I was so unsuccessful in my relationships. You know, one of the things I realized in my early sobriety is I couldn't communicate with her. I couldn't communicate with anybody. In other words, it was either screw you, I'm out of here, or I'm out of here, screw you. You know, that was about the extent of what I knew. So I got lined up about with these two other geniuses back in my early sobriety, and I don't know where we got, the, got these things, but these two guys said, Tim, you need some communication skills, son, is what you need. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, how about these? When, when, when you're talking to her and you're, you don't know what to say, just say, how can I help? How can I help? So I started that. How can I help? You know, because he said, that throws the ball back to them. You know what happened? Oh, what, it didn't go too long. I found people who didn't want my help, you know. So I said to these guys, I said, well, do you tell them if you don't want your help? And he said, well, you tell them, well, I'm sorry you feel that way. So I got, how can you help? And I'm sorry you feel that way. Then the third genius jumps in and says, hey, you need to validate people. Tell them that they might be right. So I got my, I got my tools, man. How can I help? Sorry you feel that way. Hey, you might be right. And like any drunk, I am overusing it to death, right? <laughs> I'm using it in my home. I'm using it at work. I'm using it in AA. I'm killing it, right? Tuesday night men's meeting, a great meeting. I'm spiritual as can be. I come flying into the house on my wings, you know, just kind of really up there, kind of sit down at the table, all hell's breaking loose in there, she's yelling at my daughter, my daughter's yelling at my son, and you know, I'm just sitting there waiting to do my thing, and my wife comes flying in the kitchen before I can say anything, she said, and don't give me that how can you help shit. <laughs> I said, well honey, I'm sorry you feel that way. <laughs> and she said, you asshole, I said, yep, you might be right. <laughs> Oh, man. Here's the deal now. I usually have a couple of young guys after I speak come up and go, Hey, man, what were those three things? If you use them, you are on your own. You know, I promise you that. I had three, uh, three beautiful children, I told you that. The Christmas baby. I have another son who works with me. And I have a baby girl. And uh, I knew from the get-go my baby girl was her daddy's daughter. I knew that from the get-go. You know, when she was a little bitty toddler, her first little phrase was, I'll do it myself. Her second little phrase was, is you're not the boss to me. <laughs> and sure enough, she grew up and she was a wildcat, you know. And she and her mom butt heads and she got to drinking early on. And she was all about what I was all about. And, uh, you know, about nine, ten years ago, she left Louisville. And she's a very talented child, very beautiful child. Blonde, blue-eyed, uh, just a gorgeous, talented kid. 
But she left Louisville about nine and a half years ago, and she went on a run up to Chicago to the uh, uh, Art Institute where she went to school up there. She got involved in the Second City improv thing, and she eventually ended up going to Los Angeles on a run with another girl. And we knew a little bit what was going on, but not a whole lot, you know. But I knew this. I knew she was in bad shape. I knew she was pretty much on a liquid diet, and it was not going well. And about nine years ago or plus, she came home to Louisville to see her mom and I. Here's what I saw, you guys. I saw my daughter, this beautiful blonde kid, and her eyes were all sunk in her head. Her cheeks were all caved in. Her teeth were falling out of her head. Her hair was so matted to her head she couldn't even comb it. She probably lay weighed less than 100 pounds. She was dying of the disease from alcohol, of alcoholism. And, of course, when I said to her, Honey, is there anything I can do for you? She said, I'm fine, Dad. And she left. And I heard Chuck talking about this just a minute ago. And she went to L.A. And I waited for the phone to ring. You know, I know all of us have been there. And if you haven't been there, you're probably going to be there. And thank God, you know, about eight and a half years ago, that phone did ring. And thank God it happened to be her. But she also was on her very last leg. She had been living in, her, in that car out in Los Angeles, you know, just dying daily. Because in addition to her alcoholism, she had the disease of anorexia. So she was dying. Her body was decaying. And she said, she called me that day and she said, Daddy, I can't take anymore. What should I do? And here's what I want to share with you. I'm 12 years sober at this point in time. You know, I'm sponsoring a lot of guys. I'm giving talks. I don't have any problem with this, right? You call me. I can tell you exactly what we're going to do. We're going to get together. Send your kid to me. We're going to do the 12 steps. We're going to put you in a home group. I want to tell you what. All of a sudden, when it's your baby girl and she's 2,000 miles away and you can't get to her, it was a whole different ball game. Because what went through my mind was, hey, Tim, what do you think about the OANA now, buddy? Is it good enough for her? What do you think about those 12 steps now, Tim? Will it work for your baby? What do you think about the God of your understanding, Tim, that you're always talking about? Is it good enough for her? And I want to tell you, everything in me wanted to get on an airplane and go out and bring my baby home. And I sit there and I cried and I sit there and I cried. And where this came from, I'll never know, because what I ended up telling her was, Honey, here's a man's name in Los Angeles in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I pray that you call him. You know what? And I hung up that phone, and I cried, and I cried, and I cried, because, you know, I thought it's 50-50 whether or not she makes that call or I go out there and bring her home in a box. But, you know, what I also can tell you was a huge moment for me, because what I also knew was I had given her all I have to give. I have nothing else to give her because she happens to be my baby that I have to give you. I have nothing else to give other than a guy named Bill gave to a guy named Bob, who God gave to a guy named Chuck Chamberlain, who gave to Clancy, and it's come all the way down here. That's all I have because no matter what we say or how we look at it, what I happen to know today is this is the best shot. This is the only thing in the history of, of AA, of the history of alcoholism, that's done anything substantial with people of my kind and my daughter's kind. And I hung up that phone and, and I knew that either way, whether I had to go out there and give her or she called that man, that I had given her everything that you had given me. And I'm very, 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 very grateful to tell you that this past July and every July since then, we get to go out to Los Angeles on an airplane to Clancy's home group and we get to help my daughter celebrate her birthdays in Alcoholics Anonymous. 
you know, and for that I am very, very grateful. And you see, that's why, you know, I always, no matter what I'm asked to do anything, whether I feel comfortable with it or I don't feel comfortable with it, I do it. Because somebody else's kid is always going to need to be here. I'll just share with you real quickly. The man's phone number I gave him was a man named Scott Redman. Some of you may have known Scott. And I mentioned his name because he's no longer with us. He passed away a couple years ago. And I'll be forever grateful that Scott Redman went all the way across town to meet my daughter, and he did not have to do that because he was a good member of Alcoholics Anonymous. He took out of his time to become uncomfortable. As a direct result of that, my daughter lives today. And then she was able to get into a home group of Alcoholics Anonymous that has done and taught her commitment, has taught her responsibility, has taught her everything that she needed to know to live as a young adult woman. And I can't tell you, if you're a parent, especially if you're a father of a daughter, how much comfort it gives me to know that every Wednesday night, you know, my daughter will be right in Clancy's home group, sitting in her seat. Doesn't give me a lot of comfort that she's sitting next to you, but gives me a lot of comfort that she's there. No, I sincerely mean that. I'd be forever grateful for Clancy, for all the people here have come before us, and for Sandy. And if you're new, please understand, you're in a very, very special conference. You've got people here who have carried the torch for Alcoholics Anonymous for a long, long time. And not only the ones that are at the podium, but there's so many of them sitting out there today that I know that are 40, 45 years, and they keep showing up. You know, and I'll finish with this. You know, my sponsor said there's 95% of the people in AA, they just take the ordinary and that's good enough for them, right? They get sober, they get a home group, and they go and they drink a cup of coffee every week. But there's 5% of people in AA that want it all. They want it all. And I'm guessing that those 5% are here this weekend because you shoot up and you show up and you make that extra effort to be places and do things. I tell the guys I sponsor, when somebody gives you the opportunity to go somewhere, even if it's not convenient, even if it's not comfortable, please go. There's magic here in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I am so grateful you know, to be a part of that. And I'm so grateful to, uh, to, to the committee. Steve, I'm especially grateful to you. You're a good friend. Uh, I look forward to the rest of the conference. If you see me wandering around looking kind of goofy, it's probably no big deal. Just give me a hug. I'm probably starting to notice that I'm not getting respect that a man of my stature should be getting. <laughs> Thank you, guys.